Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, what's up? It's Scott Groves, the On The Edge Podcast. We're with my buddy Ty, and it's it's so funny because Ty and I were talking the other day. He's like, well, what are we going to talk about if I come on the podcast? Like, I, I don't know what I've done. I'm like, well, I don't know. Let's see. You played professional baseball. Uh, you got the best online dating stories of anybody I've ever met. We talked all about basically being sober for two years and being in recovery because of uh, some things that happened and changed in your life. And you're like one of the fittest say middle-aged guys that i know so uh what did i miss in the 30 second reader's digest version of ty no that pretty much sums me up pretty uh, well and you did everybody everything and and you did say as we started smoking the cigar we're smoking a a provada t52 and an uh, arturo fuente grand over here you did say i think i've smoked crack more times than i've smoked a cigar so there's some really good recovery stories um where do you want to start man baseball recovery fitness like you're a fascinating guy and i don't i don't know where to kick off god i don't where did we begin? I started out as a child. Started as a child in Newberry Park, and uh, let's yeah. get that bad boy up there. Um, all right, so obviously if you played professional baseball, lifelong passions. Let's start there. Well, it's interesting. When I was a kid, I was pretty awkward. Extremely, extremely awkward. Um, totally uncoordinated. At some point, my uh, falling down on the playground and scraping up my knees and putting my teeth through my bottom lip and getting sewn up like 16 times. Doctor finally looked at my mom and said, dude, this kid needs some kind of athletics. <laughs> Just like, to get your body right? Because he like, he's tripping on his own dick every day. Like, this is bad. So she would uh, talk to my stepdad. My stepdad used to play basketball back in the day. He was six, seven. And, Holy shit. Uh, he's a pretty big dude. And so I, I played basketball. Started at the age of seven. Didn't score a point the whole year. It's pretty pathetic. Um... But I loved it. I loved getting out there. I loved getting out with the guys. We actually won the championship because we had the best kid in the league on the, at the time. And then I just got progressively better. I averaged like 12, 13 points the second year. And I got pretty good. I became a complete gym rat. So I fell in love with it. Like 30 points a game the next year. And this is at how old? At this time, I was 10, I think. So you're, you're really falling in love. 10, 10, 11, 12. I got on a traveling team. We won the championship every year and then went into high school. But by the age of 12... This is actually an interesting story. So I'm at Easter Sunday at my aunt's place in Simi Valley. And my grandfather, who's you know, he's passed away now, but he's watching us throw a baseball around. And the only time I'd ever really played baseball was softball at the elementary school level or something. So he's like, hey, he runs in the house. He grabs my mom. He says, hey, you got to come here. You got to see this. But go out there. And we're at a park across the street from my aunt's ranch. She's at a ranch there. He says, watch this kid throw a baseball. Never played before. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You've seen the movie Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. You know the part where he's trying to explain to the girlfriend, you know, for some reason I could just play. Yeah. Well, I can't explain it. For some reason I could just play. And, and do you think that came from your time in basketball or you just think it just, it just the, your body shape just, because you pitched, right? I mean, that's the most technical job in baseball and it was just natural. Fuck, I hate people like you. I really do, man. Like, well, the problem was that I was kind of a, you know, and I talked to you a little bit about my history, the way that I grew up and some of the difficulties I had in early childhood. Some of them were self-imposed and some were definitely imposed upon me. Uh, so I grew up with a big chip on my shoulder and was kind of a punk. So I didn't really take it seriously. It was God-given gift and didn't really work hard. I just showed up and I was that good. Yeah. And in hindsight, I rode that all the way through a minor league career and 
that's probably why I didn't go farther than that. So, you know, it's interesting because we, we've talked to a couple pro athletes on this podcast and uh, just in life growing up in L.A., you meet interesting people who have played in different pro sports. So, you know, 10, 12 years old, you pick up a baseball and you're pretty good at throwing it. Obviously, does that turn into high school baseball, college baseball? Like, like where, where does it go or when do you decide to make the transition from basketball to baseball? Well, I played both played both every year. I love basketball. Basketball is still probably the first love of my life, but I knew pretty quickly that baseball was going to be where I would potentially be able to make like a mark because I could excel above other kids that it just was kind of unfair to be honest with you. Yeah. Like I would show up and I'd hit balls 400 feet at the age of 12 years old. Jesus Christ, man. And I didn't necessarily throw harder than everybody, but for some reason I had incredible aim and control of the baseball. Interesting. Um, I was also blessed with some really good coaches. I mean, my first real coach was a guy named Emery Petty, and he used to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. I mean, the guy was a legend. And um, at least for us, he was a legend. You know? Right. This guy played in the major leagues, you know. And uh, and he's teaching, like, peewee baseball? Yeah, we were 12 years old. That's amazing. He was the first coach we ever had. That's yeah. amazing. Amazing, dude. So I'm I'm totally ignorant about baseball. Like, at 12 years old, you're not hitting off the tee or anything like that, right? Like, this is real pitching baseball? It's really p- real pitching. It was uh, it's called pony baseball versus uh, versus uh, little league. Got it. Two different majors factions. Uh, little league. You're, if you've seen the little league World Series, they're not allowed to lead off. I don't understand why they do that with kids. It doesn't make any sense. But that's their tradition. Pony baseball. You're leading off. Like it's more real fundamental. See, this how ignorant I am. I don't even know what leading off is. Like stepping off the base to like yeah. run to second. Yeah, pitcher gets the ball. He comes to the set, and then the lead. The guy from first base takes a couple steps off trying to get closer to second. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, cool. So 12 years old, you're playing, playing pony ball. You've got a great coach. And then um, did you did you live in a school district or did you go to a school where baseball was really big? Because I know like Granada Hills High School has a really big baseball program here at the high school level. I just remember that because I had a buddy that was a coach over there. Um, but like how does this – I mean how does one make the leap from – all right, I'm 12, I have some natural talent to like end up playing, you know, single A ball, double A ball, eventually getting to the pros, which I, I know we're going to talk about why why you think you didn't make it there, but what, what like, what happens? Like, how, how does it, because I, I just remember high school, like I wasn't focused on anything. I was, I, I wrestled, but I wasn't like, I wasn't singularly focused on anything where I was ever going to be, I was never going to be a pro version of something that I did in high school. <laughs> well, except for maybe a talker. Right. I, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Which I can relate to. Yeah. Right. So, so how, how does yeah. that how does that transition? What do your teenage years look like? Well, imagine imagine for a moment waking up every day and feeling like you're destined for something. And I'm not saying you have the work ethic to do it. Right. Right. But let's say you feel like you're destined to do something. You know they're going to find you. Right. So I'd have high school coaches that would come out and they would watch me, and especially having a six foot seven stepdad, they're looking at me going, "Wow, this kid's going to be a beast." Didn't know it wasn't my real dad. Right. right. They're like, you know, "This I'm guy's going to be tall, at six feet tall." Yeah, he's going to be they're tall. Like, he's he's left handed. Yeah. yeah. All right. So these high school coaches yeah. are looking at you. So I get into high school and I had skipped a grade. My mom was an English major. So she taught me how to read. I read the Hobbit before I turned five, which is insane, but that's just the truth. And, that is insane. Um, so, uh, you know, another reason that I felt awkward and different, you know, but, um, just love to play. I love to play. So I'd go out and hit balls all the time and I'd play and I was a gym rat, like I said before. So I was at little park in New park called Borchard. So I was either playing basketball or playing baseball all the time. And um, I did actually work pretty hard in my teen years, you know, so through high school. And then really what kind of catapulted my career was American Legion. We got a coach who was another former Major League Baseball player. And, you know, there's some other major leaguers in his family. He kind of took over the program and really taught us how to play and really coached us. And 
got us into major tournaments. And at the age of 18, we won the American Legion World Series Championship. Amazing. Fargo, North Dakota. So the team went 41 and three. Astounding team. We had three or four major leaguers on the team. Like it was really, really cool. So in high school, would this be considered like a club ball, like, like a club team, or were you a high school team? Or Well, they didn't really have the traveling teams back then like they have now. So Got American it. Legion was basically the elite uh, amateur non-collegiate league got it It, so it was the it was the cream of the crop at the time yeah i mean the percentage of like the people that play in high school then go to either college or you know a ball to double a to triple a to make it in the majors that's got to be such an infinitesimal percentage of people and the fact that you had three on this high school level team that ended up going pro that's an insane talent pool like you you never see a high school team where like three guys end up making it into the NFL. It just, it just doesn't happen. Like maybe modern day or one of those powerhouses, but that's fucking amazing. It's pretty incredible. We, well, what we did at Newbury park is we teamed up for the, in their second season, we teamed up with thousand Oaks. The two of us kind of combined forces and between the two programs, I think six of us got drafted. I believe if that's right. Holy two shit. Of them, two of them made him made it to the major leagues and one was an all-star and, and can you explain the the Major League Baseball drafting system? Because, you know, I think of the draft, I think of the NBA or the NFL, where it's like you go through your four years of college, you get drafted, and you're going straight to the Patriots to play, you know, your rookie year. But I know in baseball, it's it's much different. Like, you get drafted in high school, and then you, like, play in this weird menagerie of, like, leagues, and maybe you get called up. Can you explain to idiots like me, like, how the how the draft in baseball works? Sure. So like, unlike football, where you're playing in college and you're literally being prepared to play in the NFL in baseball, there's no such thing as a high school kid or even a college kid really that's prepared to play in the major leagues. There's just such an incredible gap in the level of consistency that's required to be successful at that level. Like you might have the talent, but there's no way you're going to do it every single day. And they play every single day, you know, they play 162 games. So they'll put you in the farm system. It starts with rookie ball, then got low A, middle A, high A, double A and triple A. Got it. So they just work your way up. And depending on how well you excel, they'll promote you faster. So the Dodgers might draft, I don't know, 100 people a year or something to put into these A-ball systems or 20 people a year, and they're just constantly feeding these A-ball systems. Is that how it works? 100 might be a little high. So I got drafted in the 47th round, which is fairly low. That was the 47th pick of the Cardinals. Okay. Um, But then they're going to have free agents that they'll pick up too. And a lot of these kids are coming from other countries like the Dominican Republic or... You know, they might come from Mexico or South America. We had a couple of kids from Argentina on the team. Amazing. Right. So you were the, the 47th draft pick of the Cardinals at 18? At 19. 19. And do they pay you? Oh, yeah. I got a $10,000 signing bonus and $850 a month salary. Holy shit. So it really is like that movie Bull Durham where you're like a starving student trying to make your way through AAA, all the way up to AAA ball and hopefully get called up to the the majors. Uh, That's one of the reasons that people love that movie that played baseball or no baseball because it is pretty accurate in a lot of ways. Yeah. I just remember starving trying to make it to the majors. Yeah, I remember watching that. And it's like they're staying at these flea bag hotels. They've got like a broken down travel bus. And I'm like, wait a minute. Is this how it was, you know, whenever the movie was set 50s, 60s, 70s or whatnot? Or is this like how it actually is today? But I imagine that's how it actually is today, right? Like if you pay for the Lancaster Jayhawks, right. you're making a thousand bucks a month just probably either getting money from family or working another job just to try to make it or yeah, is there time? Working, you're working during the off season trying to supplement your income. You can't really do it during the season because you're playing full time. Yeah, I mean, imagine getting on a bus and you're sleeping up in the 
in the luggage racks up top on a 14 hour drive from you know, Peoria, Illinois to Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, you really, I mean, this is almost like they're just weeding out the people. Baseball, you gotta dude. really you love really baseball. You gotta love baseball. Or you really have to be that guy who's like, I'm gonna get rich. Yeah. Most of the, most of the guys are out there because they love the game. Yeah. So how, how long does this last? Like, how long are you in Peoria? How long are you affiliated with the, the Cardinals? And like, how, how long is that journey before you either kind of, you know, wash out, decide it's not for you, or you start to get called up to the different leagues? I mean, are there, are there these super kids that go from 19 to 21 playing in the major leagues? Or is it like, ah, you're kind of on a five-year path, and at five years, you either go get a, a quote-unquote real job or you get called up? Like, what, what does that look like? Or is it all just kind of dumb luck and whoever works the hardest? I would say there's a lot of truth to whoever works the hardest is going to make it, but you got to have the talent too. You got to be coachable. You got to have the right attitude. You got to be good to work with other players. I, I, this is the first part of the tragedy of my life was that since I, this was a God given ability that I didn't really work that hard to get. I was very readily willing to give it away. There was a click of guys that were dedicated and focused and we thought they were brown nosers because they were always talking to the coach, but really they were just dedicated to what they were doing and they took this seriously. They were business guys and players. Um, I was on the opposite side of the fence. I was closing down the bar every night and we were, you know, dancing and talking to girls and enjoying our time and take it very seriously. And so I only played three years with the Cardinals. Interesting. Yeah. And in the, in the three years you got to double a, you know, I, I've got a buddy who had in high school, funny guy names, Matt Crisar. We got, we got to get him in here sometime. He played for, you know, he was a decent high school basketball player and it just so happened. They had like the California CIF tournament at Loyola Marymount, his senior year of high school. And he just had the game of his life, you know, hit like 13 three-pointers, just like uncanny game of his life. And the coach from Loyola is like, who's this fucking, you know, six foot two white kid that can shoot a three? You know, he's probably going to grow a couple more inches. So they they brought him on the team. And I remember he used to tell me, you know, he, he, was, a, he was a bench warmer his whole four years at Loyola, but he worked really hard. The difference between him from the starters to then they would go down to the Spectrum Club and play with like the B players on the uh, Lakers to like, a couple times he got to play with Ronnie Turioff and Lamar Odom. He's like, it might as well have just been a different fucking sport going from like the bench warmers in college to the bench warmers and the pros to like the real pros. And then you get somebody like a Kobe Bryant who's on a totally different level. So what's the, what's the skill difference between like double a to triple a to pro? Is it 1% different, 5% different? You just hit some crazy hitting streak. Like how, how different is the quality in those players? So you're going to see a lot of wide variance of, of talent at the double A level. Um, and even the high A level, you'll see a lot of major league talent. That's going to be there. It really is going to boil down to consistency. And also, I mean, we didn't really play in front of real cameras every single day. You got to keep in mind that this is entertainment really. So you know, what are you going to be like when the cameras are on and they've got close-ups in your face every single time you're getting in the batter's box, you know, there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that. Um, so really, it's going to come down to consistency. You, you'll see a lot of guys at the AA level that literally could walk onto a major league field and they could play. But are they going to be able to do that every single day? No, probably not. Yeah, so the AA guys can probably, I don't know what the analogy is, throw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball or hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, but can they do that for 162 games? So take, take hitting, for example. The guy might be able to hit the ball just as hard, just as far. He might even be able to hit for average. But is he going to do that against major league pitching that's hitting their spot 85% of the time? Probably not. Yeah. Take the pitcher and put him in the same situation. 
can he throw the same pitches? Does he have the same movement? Does he have the same velocity? And does he have the same junk, right? Probably. Yeah. Is he going to hit his spots 85% of the time? Because if not, he's not going to do well. So it's funny, we talked before we started recording, we talked about the spot, you know, the strike zone. And again, this is coming from somebody who's completely ignorant. I watch baseball when I can go to a Dodger game and eat 5,000 calories of food and enjoy, you know, the the camaraderie of the people in the stands. So I know jack shit about baseball. But I do remember watching a couple uh, episodes on like real sports or sports 360 where they were arguing like, why have we not gone to automation on the strike zone? And, you know, there's, we've got a sport where there's, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars involved. Like, how do we still have the human era of umpires? And again, I'm completely ignorant in this area, but we were talking a little bit before we started. Can, can you explain the tri- the strike zone and why we've not gone to automate? I feel like everything else in the NFL has gone to like instant replay. And in basketball, it's like, you know, the rim has a sensor on it. The ball probably has a sensor on it. There's a shot clock. There's instant replay. And baseball seems to be the last holdout of like, no, there's some human errors where sometimes the ump calls a strike a ball and a ball a strike. It just seems so antiquated to me as somebody who fell in, you know, who loved baseball his entire life. Do you like that? Do you hate that? Should we be in an automated situation yet with an umpire? Like what, what's going on with the strike zone and the umpire? Well, this is something they're talking about right now. I mean, this is really one of the hot topics about baseball is are they going to get rid of the umpire, especially the strike zone of being automated. And uh, I'm a baseball purist like to consider myself a purist. What I like seeing is an umpire that's going to have a, he's going to have his personality woven into the strike zone. Like as a pitcher, I want to figure out where his zone is because typically a strike zone is never going to be a pure strike zone. It's going to be two inches outside. He's going to be able to, you're going to get the low strike. You're going to get the inside strike. You're going to get the high strike. My job is to figure out where your zone is and then manipulate that to get an advantage on the hitter. So it's never perfect, right? Which I like because that gives a little bit of personality to the game. Interesting. So they're going to take that away if they go automated. But the problem that they're having right now is that the officiating right now, from what I've been seeing, and it's pretty garbage. It's pretty yeah. Garbage. So, so, so when I see that little automated square, that little automated strike zone in right. Major League Baseball, you're saying from umpire to umpire, they might be a little low into the left or a little high into the right or whatever, and they they might manipulate that strike zone. Is that just based on their own sight picture or the type of pitcher that they're umping against? Or what what, what do you mean? Like, because I'm thinking about this correctly, right? I I see the little digital square on the, when I've, if I'm watching baseball on, you know, Fox 11, um, but you're saying the umpires kind of have their different interpretation of where that is. Well, I mean, there could be a lot to, it goes into the decision of whether or not to call a strike. Um, one guy might be a left-handed pitcher and then you've got an umpire that's set up on the inside and based on the way that the ball is curving because it's where it crosses the plate, not where it's caught, right? So is it actually entering the strike zone at any time? There's a little bit of interpretation to that. Now with the boxes that they're setting up, they're going to claim that there's no interpretation to that. There always is a little bit. Got it. And did you ever want to just punch an umpire in the face because as a left-hander, you knew you were throwing strikes and they were calling balls? Like, I can't imagine the frustration if you're, like, trying to make your way uh, and earn a living doing this sport and you feel like you're getting an unjust call. Or maybe you did punch an umpire. I see the smile on your face. Um, Well, anybody who's been a pitcher long enough will recognize probably the story. And I'm sure that most of the pitchers out there that have done this at least once in their lives, you get an umpire who's just an absolute prick. And he's intentionally not calling the game right. And you might want to mix in a, you know, a, a pitch out that ends up going right down the middle. <laughs> and, he'll, and he'll wear it. Just hit it right and in the chest. what's he going to do? There's nothing he can do because, oops, the ball got away. 
Yeah. The ca- the catcher didn't. I didn't see the sign. I'm sorry. <laughs> and wh- what's like, what's a fast pitch these days? I, I I mean, I have in my mind 100 miles an hour. Is that is that normal? Is that possible? Is that an outlier? Oh, it's possible. I never hit 100 miles an hour. In my wildest dreams, I didn't throw that. I probably topped out in maybe 92, 93. I didn't really throw that hard. Most yeah. of my stuff was off speed. Um, as a lefty, I had through more of like, if you guys know who Tom Glavin type was. Nice. Like I had a decent fastball, but it was mostly about changing speeds and throwing to different places and keeping people off balance. It was more of like a crafty pitcher than an overpowering guy. Yeah, a like, buddy of mine definitely throw a hundred these days. Hundred and five. Everybody like everybody in the major leagues can throw a hundred more or less. I would say that every almost every single team is going to have a guy that's throwing ninety eight to hundred. Every single team, which was unheard of back in the day. Holy shit! And has has I mean the game's changed obviously. Um, you know, from the Babe Ruth days of a lot, a lot of players hitting 400, you know, whatever, four out of 10 balls. What's happening in modern baseball minus the steroids? Um, what's happening in modern baseball? Like are the pitchers getting better? The batters getting better? Is the strategy of the game getting better? Like what, what's changing? How's that game evolving? Well, I'll tell you one thing that's made a profound impact on hitting is the shift. The defenses are allowed to load up on one side for a left-hander load up on the other side for a right-hander. And it's very difficult when a pitcher throws you inside pitches all day. It's very difficult to turn that around and hit it the other way. So you're hitting it right to where the defense is playing. And they didn't used to do that in the 80s and 90s. They didn't do that stylistically or they couldn't do it by the rules? No, stylistically, they just didn't. They didn't have that strategy. And now with the metrics and with, um, no, I think the Oakland A's are the ones that started that, right? The Billy Bean days. Is that the whole Moneyball movie with uh, Brad Pitt? Yeah. And part of that is trying to figure out how to play defenses against certain types of hitters and how to pitch them. And there's all the, I mean, think about the video footage that you're able to study now that they didn't really have back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, high def, right? Seeing every evolution of the ball now with high def TV is is pretty crazy. Right. And you got new statistics like spin rate. Like you can literally tell how hard the pitcher's spin rate is, how how hard is his off-speed stuff's going to break. I mean, it's very, very, like they're meticulous to detail and they just didn't have the technology to do that before. I remember liking the movie Moneyball, but I can only remember one great line in there where they're all sitting around the table and it's like the new school data crunchers versus the old school, like kind of, you know, people that recruited talent and the one pitching coach, he just has this amazing line. It's probably a throwaway line in the movie, but I think it's so funny. And they're, they're talking about bringing in this like relief pitcher or something. He's like, no, 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 you know, we can't bring in Billy that that guy dates fat chicks. And they're like, what? And they're like, yeah, anybody who dates fat chicks has no confidence. He can't be our closer, our reliever. And I just remember being like, oh, my God, this is funny that this is like a multi-million dollar operation. And this is probably how all these old school pitching coaches thought. Like, no, no, no. If he dates fat chicks, he's got no personality. He's got no confidence. We cannot have him be our closer. And I'm like, wow. that that To me, that really solidified the crux of the movie of like, we're moving from this like opinion to data, right. which I'm sure baseball now is just all data. I mean, it was always a data sport, but now it's going to be like all data well i don't know that it's all data but it's definitely moving that direction where they're getting away from any of the opinion based decisions um have you ever seen or heard of the movie trouble with the curve no clint eastwood movie phenomenal movie oh all right i'm putting it i'm I'm a movie junkie and uh it's basically about an old school scout kind of losing his vision a little bit and it's a very touching movie but it also has some very like interesting baseball information in it too and it's about a guy who literally is potentially going to be one of the greatest hitters of our generation. He's still at the high school level. Everybody loves this kid, but this scout goes, no, he can't hit a curveball. He sees it in his swing. There's a hitch in his swing and no one else sees it. And 
out to see the movie to see how it turns out. But is, is this the one where Clint Eastwood's like reconnecting with his daughter? That's yeah. kind of the subtext of the movie. Exactly I think I, is. I think I did see this, but I think yep. I saw it on like a uh, on a first date where I was trying to get laid. So <laughs> I probably was not focusing on the movie and I was focusing you on the girl. Thinking about baseball at all? I was not thinking about baseball. Right. I was thinking about trying to get this girl's clothes off or something. I'm thinking whether she was wearing polka dots or not. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Like that, like that scene in uh, old school where he's like, I don't know, you know, I'm just at Cheesecake Factory and I'm thinking maybe the waitress is wearing some type of new underwear and like what i thought we were in the tree of trust here like um man i hope to i hope to god that movie came out a long time ago or else my wife's gonna be real mad just kidding um all right so so you're with uh you're, you're in peoria with uh you know uh rookie ball a ball double a ball and um i, I guess i can just ask because we're totally transparent what what happened like why 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 do we not have the story of ty getting to the majors or was it was it a talent thing was it a focus thing was it too many late nights at the bars what like what what well, I guess here's where we talk about some of the problems, right? So, <clears throat> I uh, we could fast, we could rewind all the way to when I was 13 years old. It was the first time that I started drinking. Was introduced to beer, <clears throat> and uh, all the awkwardness that happened when I was a little kid kind of went away when I started drinking. I started to feel really comfortable. I started to feel super social. All of a sudden, I could connect with people. I could get girls. Uh, it was kind of the solution to my problems, and. That definitely was accelerated when I was in the minors because we just were partying all the time. And there was a couple of girls that I was hanging out with. And uh, there was one particular night. We, it was like a Sunday. Never forget it was a Sunday at 7 o'clock because that was one of the reasons they didn't release me on the spot. And uh, drank about, I don't know, five or six beers. Went down to the grocery store because we'd run out. So me and this girl went down there and I had a Mustang at the time. It was kind of souped up and I had a whole bunch of speakers in it and amplifiers. And so we we're listening to the, listening to the music super loud. And, and it was, uh, it was like drizzling rain. So just enough to make the streets slick, but not really raining hard. <clears throat> Got in a bit of a car accident. I'd say a bit of a car accident, meaning that I hit a wet spot, slid into a parked car and then decided it was a better idea for me to leave. A little scared of what that meant, of course. So rather than just sticking around, I'm like, I'm out of here. So drove home. Totally made for movie story, but it's unfortunately absolutely you know, word for word true. Driving down the street in the middle of Peoria, Illinois, with flames going over because the tire was popped and I'm driving on the rim, driving like 50 trying to get home. Get home, the car's smoking, put the, put the cover on the car and just kind of stared at it like this is a pretty interesting visual. My car's smoking underneath the car cover. And uh, sat in my apartment with this girl just trembling. Dude, I think I just ended my baseball career. About an hour went by, I thought, should probably go back. Pretty sure they know who I am. So got in the car, went back. And, you know, I walked in the grocery store and there's like no one, no one's looking at me. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this. Did I get away with this? So I go over, of course, and pick up two cases of beer and go up to the, go up to the counter. And that's when a police officer came up to me and said, are you, Chance, are you Ty? Yes, yes, sir, I am. You come with me. Yeah. So that was kind of the beginning of the end. They didn't release me on the spot. They gave me about four weeks after that, but that was kind of the beginning. Yeah. And, and was it, was it because they knew that there was kind of a, an outlook that didn't look so good for Ty, or was it, hey, was it was it a one and done type situation, or what was the what do you think it was? Well, it's interesting. So my my coach the last year was the same coach I had my very first year, and his name was Roy, unbelievable dude, 
the toughest little SOB you ever met in your life. If I remember right, he was half Italian and half Puerto Rican and was all mean. And he was a loving guy, but I mean, you did not, this would, this guy would just break you in half. Yeah. And the first, the first day I ever played professional baseball, we walk into the clubhouse. He looks us all in the face and he says, gentlemen, I want to tell you one thing. And I want you to take this very seriously. You're all going to have one day. You're going to have one thing in common with each other. Right now you have a bunch of differences right now. You're going to have one thing that everybody in this room is going to share. And that is that your baseball career will come to an end. And the only thing you're going to have left is when you look in the mirror, you're going to be able to say you gave this game everything you had. Be able to say that. So four weeks after this accident, I'm sitting there across the table from Roy. Ugh. Roy looks at me and he goes, you know, it's really sad because you would have had a nice career. Nothing to do with your baseball. Yeah. And that's all he said. And that's all he needed to say. And I was, you know, I was brash and blind to my own, you know, failures yeah. And so I wanted to blame other people and blame the system and didn't get moved up fast enough because I didn't throw hard enough. I mean, at the end of the day, it was 100% my fault. Yeah. So I got up and I'm like, okay, well, thanks for the opportunity and left as if it wasn't a big deal. I'm broken inside. Yeah. But that was the truth. I drank myself out of baseball. You know, there's that old saying, youth is wasted on the young. And uh, I, I've, talked to, I've talked to a lot of could have been professional athletes and it's very rarely like I blew out my shoulder or I just wasn't talented enough. So many times, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation, I guess awkwardly because of my business in the loan world, I just start talking to people about their finances and where they've been and where they're going. And I've talked to a lot of you know professional athletes or could have been pro athletes. And it's usually something where, you know, as you get older and you're more reflective, it's like, yeah, you know, I fucked up and didn't take the calendar seriously. I drank too much. I partied too much. I was, I was too much of an asshole and could have be a team player. And, uh, why does it take men like us till our forties to become self-aware? You know, there's so much stuff I've fucked up in my life where I'm just like, dude, if I had a 40 year old mindset when I was 20, 25, 30, 35, 39, 41, like how much better would my life be? Like what, why, why is this that some people find that niche at 20 and they can basically be an adult at 20 and you and I obviously couldn't be like, if it wasn't for the military, I would have drank myself out of college. You know, the good thing about being in the army is no matter how much you drink, there's a, there's effectively an E6 sergeant screaming at you at five o'clock in the morning, get the fuck up Groves. We're going to go run five miles. And it's like, he was a big, scary motherfucker, but you know, I, I couldn't screw up because they still made you one. Like what, what, like does our testosterone level have to drop or what, what has to happen to men where we finally figure our shit out in our forties or some people never. I, I can't really speak for other people. I know for myself, I just was an unbelievably immature kid at the age of 21. My drinking had really taken on new heights and it really just got in my way of being effective, got in my way of being helpful to other people, of understanding the bullshit that was coming out of my own mouth and recognizing it for what it was. I mean, it just, it just got in my way. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, meanwhile, I had this massive ego, this unbelievable ego. Like, do you know who I am? Do you know how good I am? And I played a ball like, right. Kind of hilarious actually. Right. Well, I'm glad you could laugh at yourself now because, you know, as we mentioned, it takes you several more years before you're like, oh, maybe the maybe the alcohol and the partying isn't serving me and I should just cut it off completely, which is why we're drinking iced tea tonight instead of, uh, you know, instead of sharing a drink. So, you know, I I know you had a bunch of other successful careers kind of in and out of different things like what happens between, you know, 23 year old version of you and I'm, I'm guessing like me, you're in your 40s now, right? 
47. 47, yeah. All right. So you got another you got another 20 years of stories where there's there's oh. craziness and successes and failures and whatnot. And then what what you know, what what are the highlight? What's the highlight reel? Oh man, where to begin? Uh, so I uh I came home, got to work. I actually sold Hummers. The first year AM General came out with the Hummer. You look like a them. guy that would sell I fucking Hummers. I did you it got for three months, so I hated it. Okay. Because every single guy that came, I think I sold six of them in three months, and I'm like, I gotta get the hell out of here. Because every guy that came on the lot wanted to play the big shot with his kid, right? Right. So we're doing test drives all day long, and then oh, your credit score is five hundred. That's probably not gonna work. Yeah. You know, so I got super frustrated doing that and uh and then I got really fortunate. I started playing semi-pro baseball and I found a guy through another friend of mine who uh, was a very small time independent movie producer. And I started selling private equity investments. And so sales just became a part of my thing. For some reason, I always had the ability to talk. I always had the ability to, to transfer my emotion to somebody else. If I was enthusiastic and passionate about something, I could get other people enthusiastic and passionate about it. Um, and at a young age, that's what that looked like. It was independent movies. And some of them were pretty cool. They never really made any money, but they were pretty cool. Yeah. And um, so I did that for about, I don't know, 10 years. Started a company with a couple of buddies of mine. Did that and we were, you know, somewhat successful. I've got some credits on IMDb that I look at and I kind of laugh at because I didn't really have that much to do with the production of the movie. But, you know, you get a little associate producer credit or something. Yeah. And the movies were cool. You know, they were a lot of fun. Um, any highlights, any movies you look back on and you're like, man, I'm really proud I was part of that. That was a cool fucking flick. There is one. There's one that I am actually very proud of. It's called Pride. And it's got Terrence Howard and Bernie Mac before, you know, he passed away in it and Tom Arnold in it. I, I feel like I've seen this. What, you give us the plot. It. You might have seen it. It was, a, it was a Miramax movie and it was actually really, really well done. Really well done. It was about a, kid, a group of kids that grew up in the uh, African-American kids grew up in the hood in Philadelphia and they're out there trying to play basketball. And meanwhile, you know, the drug dealers are trying to recruit them and they're not really, you know, so good in school and they have nothing to do. The original name of the movie was called PDR, which stands for Philadelphia Department of Rec. And so they're outside hanging out this like broken down rec center. And the guy who's running the rec center turns out he was an incredible, like nationally ranked college swimmer. He went through, you know, a bunch of racism and problems when he was trying to go through school and he decided, why don't I teach these kids how to swim? Give them something to do during the day. Get them off the streets. And it turns out this guy, and it's all a true story. This is a real guy. He ended up sending a whole ton of people like to the Olympics, to the Olympic trials. And so he gets them off the street, teaches them how to swim, and they eventually like developed into a state championship team. Oh, that's amazing, man. That was an incredible story. So just to be a part of something like that was very cool. And it didn't, you know, again, didn't make a ton of money. Did okay here in the United States. Didn't sell anything overseas. So right. here we had these investors that were like, dude, you're going to be so pleased with this movie. And they were pleased with the movie. The movie was phenomenal. But at the end of the day, it didn't really show a lot of profits. At the end of the day, it wasn't Transformers. So you can't sell it to a Chinese audience. It's like, it's got to be Marvel, some rehash of a uh, you know superhero brand or a, a cartoon. Like, it's just... It's so crazy. I have a buddy who's also an independent filmmaker and, you know, the crazy stuff, you know, makes his first horror movie on like a $20,000 shoestring budget, calling in all the favors from the friends. And now he's trying to get financing for the second movie. And it's just like, it's meeting after meeting after meeting with the guy who, you know, approves the scripts for Quentin Tarantino and the girl who does the, you know, managing this actress. And it's just like, it's all these crazy false starts and stops. And then you get 200 grand pledged to making the movie. 
And by the time you can get the other 300 grand pledge to making the movie, the 200 grand guy lost all of his money in crypto. And it's like, fuck, man. It's just this never ending chain of fuckery trying to get a movie made unless you're Transformers or, you know, Captain Captain Marvel or something like that. Well, it's an incredible process. Um, I learned a lot. I actually developed a TV show. So I'll tell you about this. So I came up with a TV show. I always felt a little bit like, dude, I should have been, I should have played in the major leagues, which, you know, maybe I would have made it. Maybe I wouldn't have. I didn't give it a legitimate shot. So I'll never know. But at the end of the day, I felt like that guy who had the ability to get there. And so came up with a TV show. We called it Joe Baseball. Worked out with the same guys that I started this company with. We got it actually into setup with Sony. They gave us 75 grand for the concept, which. And uh, the concept was basically the American Idol like version of baseball. So you travel around the country, you give a whole bunch of guys that are kind of like me, either played a little bit of minor league ball, they played in college, maybe they, you know, knocked up the girlfriend in high school and decided to hang it up and be a real, like, a real man and raise a family. Yeah, go maybe go be a realtor. Knee and now they're healthy or whatever the case may be, or maybe they never got drafted and felt like they should. But these are guys that have a passion, they have talent. And there's, I will tell you right now, Scott, there are thousands and thousands of these guys nationwide still to this day that absolutely have major league ability if they were given the right opportunity. Still to this day. So we got this thing into setup. And then the worst thing in the world happened for us. Do you remember the movie, the, the TV show, The Contender? Yeah. So this was super hyped and had the incredible... Sylvester Stallone, Sugar Ray Leonard. The worst thing possibly could have happened. We got super excited about it. Sony's like, if this thing's good, we're going to do yours next. Which may or may not have been true, but that was the, that was the message we got. And then that... that you know, TV show came out. We loved it. We thought, oh I God, love that show. I saw every single episode. I watched it every time it came on. I thought it was amazing. But it debuted at like number four, immediately dropped to number eight. And they're like, dude, this isn't making money. We're not, yeah. like, not going to touch sports. Yeah. I, re I remember the contender because, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that has seen Rocky four 300 times. And uh, I've, I've boxed at an amateur level. I just, I love everything about boxing and combat sports. Right. So when the contender came out, I was like all in. It was Sylvester Stallone. I think it was Sugar Ray Leonard. Um, and then there's actually a couple of pro boxers that made it out of that oh, first yeah. season. Mm -hmm. um, and now one of the guys is a commentator for DAZN, D-A-Z-N, which is the worst possible name for an app or a boxing. Like they're trying uh, to build this huge boxing following. from Chicago? Uh, yeah, Dumbers. exactly. DAZN. It's yeah. like, it's the worst, right? I'm like, you guys went way too far on this stupidity um but i remember I, I i'll never forget the opening episode of the contender they're doing this thing where they're they're checking everybody's vision and they had this big board that was like an lcd screen and it just lit up little red lights and then as a boxer as the red lights came on you just had to touch them touch them and i remember they had to go to a guy and be like hey man this was this was unforeseen it didn't come up in your medical but you have a partial blindage in your left eye you didn't get any of the red squares on this side not only is your boxing career over but i'm telling you right now if you leave this studio and you box you're gonna have and this is like sylvester stolen telling you're gonna have significant brain damage because you can't even see a punch coming from your left side and the guy's breaking down and i'm sitting there watching with my dad we're both crying like we don't know this fucking guy but we're like this is the end of some guy's dream right. and i just remember crying through the first episode like just, i was such a little bitch um compelling and, tv though compelling tv incredible tv super good yep. and and then that fails nobody watched it unbelievable that's crazy they told us it was because women didn't care which I mean, blew my mind makes sense but you know it is what it is wow so there's stuff like that i i created a company with a couple of buddies of mine again there's always a couple of buddies of mine right and sometimes that worked for me and sometimes to be honest with you it, it didn't i was not good at negotiating for it myself and i've 
admittedly not been good at the legal part of it, protecting my interests. So we started a company that was called Money Sports and we created the Money Baseball League. And it was uh, similar to what Joe Baseball was, but we would do tournaments. We wanted to do cash tournaments, kind of like the World Series of Poker. And so we actually got, you'll love this. We got Pete Rose attached. Amazing. Used him in Vegas. And this guy's a legend. And let me tell you, he is everything in person you would ever want him to be. I mean, unbelievable stories, unbelievable personality. You're just like floating, just being around the guy. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. He's one of the best guys to ever play the game. Ever. And not in the world. He's not in the Hall of Fame because they caught him betting on himself, right? So it's not like he was betting on the games and then throwing the games. He was betting on himself or his team, I think, when he was the GM or something like that. But they caught him betting on baseball because much like myself in my 20s, he was a gambling degenerate. <laughs> um, and uh, and so that permanently keeps him out of the Hall of Fame. Am I getting the story correct? Because, again, I'm not a huge baseball fan. So if you back up many, many years, like 100 years, you had the White Sox that they got paid to throw the World Series, right? Like 100 years ago, 1919 Sox. Okay. And so... Gamble. Wait, the whole team got paid to throw the World no, Series? No, there or? were a handful of players that they found that got paid. And there was like Shoeless Joe Jackson was on the team. And they found out he got paid, but he didn't throw it. Tried to give the money back, I think. And at the end of the day, his statistics were like lights out. Like he was the best player in the tournament. But they threw, you know, they got the, you know, the World Series. You know, they got stripped of it. And uh, all those guys got banned for life. You know, wow. And so they take gambling very, very seriously and found out he was gambling on baseball, which is 100% against the rules, even though he's betting on his team and he's the manager. So there's a lot of ethical stuff there. Like, you know, there's a spread involved. And so uh, there's a lot of technical stuff that I get into. But did, did, I personally think he belongs in the Hall of Fame 100%. I think it's absolutely ludicrous. He's not in there. Yeah. You look at some of the guys that like literally, admittedly did really, really bad stuff. Yeah. And they're reinstated the next day or, you know, they take 60 days off. Yeah. I much rather have somebody in the hall of fame. I mean, if we're, if we're judging people's personal character, I rather have somebody in the hall of fame who had a little bit of a gambling problem and bet on his own team versus somebody who, you know, beat their wife or killed somebody in vehicular manslaughter or something like that. Um, I, I remember a few years back within like a few year period, there was Ray Lewis, arguably, killed somebody or was part of the, the the murder of somebody. He got suspended for half a season. Then you had Plexco Burris shot himself in a leg in the leg at a club. He got suspended for two year uh, for a year. And then uh, Michael Vick was fighting dogs and he got suspended for like four years and it was supposed to be a lifetime ban, but they reinstated him. I'm like killed somebody six months, shot himself in a, in the leg brandishing a gun at a club, got suspended for like a year or two, fought dogs. Not that I want people abusing animals, but I'm like, in the pantheon of things you can do as a horrible human being, I feel like the dog fighter should have got like six months and the guy that was involved in murder maybe should have got four or five years. I just, I, I, it blows my mind how they, how this professional sports league arbitrarily throw this shit out. It's like, right. who, 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 that's, that's either a really good union or a really corrupt set of owners. There's really no... There's really no rhyme or reason to some of the decisions they make. You look at that and you go, that doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah. You know, a guy literally punches his wife in the face on video in an elevator and he's playing a couple of years later. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was pretty pretty egregious. <clears throat> and he knocked her the fuck out. Like, I saw that punch, and I was like, how is that girl not dead? Because I've gotten punched by 200, 230-pound guys before with gloves and a, and a helmet on or, you know, headgear, knowing the punch is coming. And I'm a 200-pound guy, and it's like I've had my bell rung really hard. For a 100-pound girl to just take a left hook from the fist, I was like, when I saw that video, I was I like, oh, yeah. that, that girl, forget spouse abuse, that girl's dead. Um, yeah, I just, I, it blew my mind. And and then he came out and had the balls. So like, well, you know, she was mouthing off to me and I lost like $170,000 at the craps table. I'm like, well, that's your own fault. You dummy. Like I've lost a lot of money. I've never punched my wife or girlfriend in the face. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Anyway, I digress totally off topic. So anyway, this project with Pete Rose presents itself. And then what, what happens there? Well, I mean, we, trust me, we weren't perfect. None of us were perfect in trying to get this thing formed. And it's an incredible concept, but there's a lot of moving pieces to it. And you're talking about a company that should have been funded with at least seven figures. And we went in with, I mean, I put about a hundred grand into it. And um, that was mistake number one. I, we used my money to do it. Right. Stupid. Whoops. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, it, it was what we what it was. We had a great tournament that was at Cal State, um, uh, at UC Irvine. Gave away 25 grand. Pete Rose is there literally kissing babies. Like it's picture perfect. It was incredible. Um, but then it came time to put on the second tournament. We're a little bit low on funding. And you know, the partners and I started arguing about the direction of the company. And it just ended up folding. They wanted to go with local tournaments and local like men's leagues. It seemed like the exact antichrist of what we were trying to build. Right. So we started in fighting and just and I ended up walking away. Yeah. No, that's that's unfortunate. A couple do you ever, years later, it's been it's dead. Do you, do you ever miss that? Do you ever miss the entertainment industry? Because there's got to be some perks like meeting meeting Pete Rose, right, and hanging out with him. Like I have to imagine that's like a childhood hero of yours as you're coming up in the game and playing baseball. Do do you miss that kind of allure of being in the LA scene and the the Hollywood stuff and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I was really just on the outskirts looking in anyway. I was never right in the middle of it. I mean. I'm watching this lifestyle and these guys are having 75 drink meetings trying to get one movie made. It's pretty crazy the amount of work that goes into trying to get one project greenlit. I mean, it's insane. I never really wanted to be a movie producer or director or anything like that. And I never went to film school. So I never, that was never a passion of mine. I kind of backdoored into it because I knew how to sell. So I helped them sell the stock in the company and that's how I got into it. Uh, as, far as, as far as the Money Baseball League, that was something that I felt almost destined to do. I mean, I really understood the way to establish that business, how to promote it, how to sell it. We got some incredible partners. We got like, um, you know, Hooters came on board as one of the sponsors. We got Easton Bats. We got some of the best sponsorship possible. But at the end of the day, we were just underfunded. Um, and that's stuff I miss. I mean, I miss being involved in baseball. And I've started talking to some friends of mine about getting into like local coaching. because I miss the game. But as far as entertainment, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking of like, you know, the up and coming high school player or college player, or maybe even younger than high school that could really benefit from hearing your story, right? Of like, hey, man, if, if this is really what you want to do, this is how you take it seriously. This is how you take a shot. These are the girls and the extracurricular activities that you stay away from if you want to be serious. Like, you know, there's there's so much in life where a lot of people don't need a mentor on their ability they need like a mentor on their attributes and their overall holistic picture, right? Because there's, like you said, there's probably thousands of 
kids or 20 something year olds that could have had a shot at the major leagues if they took XYZ more seriously or they, you know, stayed off the sauce or they don't knock up their girlfriend. You know, all the safety briefings they used to give us in the military every weekend on Fridays, we're leaving. They're like, don't sleep with somebody married. Don't drink and drive. Don't bounce a check. You know, we had like these hour long safety briefings on every Friday to make sure the soldiers didn't go get themselves in trouble. And sure enough, everybody goes and bounces a check and knocks up the girl. But I was like, I appreciate the effort, Sergeant. Like yeah. you're trying to keep us all out of trouble. Like how many, how many people need to hear that that are thinking about going into professional sports? Everybody. Right? Everybody. Everybody needs to hear that. Think about the difference between the military and the minor leagues. The minor leagues, they expect you to come in as a young man. Military, they don't necessarily, and they try to make you into a young man, right? Yeah. They treated minor leaguers, but that's a lot of work. I mean, come on. Did they really want to invest in trying to teach you how to be a man? They don't. Right. They expect you to know that. And, you know, I didn't necessarily know how to do that. Yeah. I didn't know how to adult when I was a kid. Yeah. And some people do. They've got incredible guidance. They've got parents that are literally on their shit. This is how it's done. Do it. You know, shut the fuck up and work harder. You know, that's the message. Yeah. And um, necessarily have that. Some people have that inside and don't have to be told. I'm always in awe of that. People that are truly self-made. They never got anything from anybody and they just figured it out. You know, like your buddy studies, figures it out, likes to solve problems. Yeah. I didn't really have that curiosity when I was younger. Interesting. Because God, I was so talented. I was You're so talented. You're just going to make it. Right? Up. You're just going to make it, right? Um, Delusional. You know, you, you, you hit on something interesting there. We just had a, a, a guest on, uh, G. Russell Reynolds, a buddy of mine, and he was talking a lot about like, how toxic masculinity is a myth and basically we need more strong men and masculinity. And you, and you kind of hit on that, like this idea of becoming a man now that you're, you know, older, wiser, couple of years in recovery, had a bunch of different, you know, uh, a bunch of different careers and whatnot. What do you think it means in like modern day America to, to be a man or, or, you know, exude masculinity without it going too far, whatever your take might be. What, what do you think it means as, as guys grow up to like really become a man? Uh, that's a great question. For, for me, being a man is taking responsibility for your own shit and being willing to admit when you're wrong. And I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I just didn't know how to do. I mean, I would, I'd have money in the bank and a lot of this I can blame on my alcoholism and maybe that is a legitimate excuse, but you know, there's laziness and there's lethargy and there's dreaming just a bunch of procrastinating and all these defects of character that I didn't know that I had that I learned about and I decided that I was going to commit to a to, to a program to try to get some help and the group of guys that have brought me in and tucked me under their wing and said we're going to show you how to do it but they're the ones that have taught me how to be a man and I watch what they do and I walk they how watch how they walk through difficult things and they do it without having to drink or without having to use any drugs to me that's what being a man is all about you know when you lose a child. I have friends that have lost children. You watch them walk through that with grace and dignity, still being kind to other people and still being of service and still getting their job, you know, getting to get their, their job on time and still paying their bills on time. That's, that's being a man to me. Yeah. And doing it with all, without taking advantage of people, doing it honestly with integrity. Incredible. Yeah. And I feel like our current environment and you can call it a political environment, a social media environment or whatever, it really detracts from that, right? Because it, it doesn't it doesn't matter what group you belong to, minority, male, female, 
middle class, upper class, gay, straight, doesn't matter. You can find somebody out there who's going to tell you on YouTube that everything is this person's fault or this group's fault or this ethnicity's fault or it's the government's fault or it's fucking global warming's fault. Um, it just feels like there's an endless supply of influencers out there that will tell you or me or anybody that looks totally different than us that it's not their fault. It's, 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 you know, it's their fault out there. It's not internal. So the, the idea that, you know, becoming a man or just a responsible c citizen is, you know, taking responsibility for your own shit. I think that's a pretty powerful statement. Um, I and mean, it's something I didn't know how to do when I was younger. Have you, you, have you read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Yeah, I, I probably need to reread it because I probably read it 10 years ago when I was not being very effective. <laughs> well, here's what's so. sad is that everybody I talk to, they're like, you're just discovering this book now? Well, yeah, I'm just becoming a man now. <laughs> right. And as pathetic as that may sound, it's just kind of the truth. And now almost everybody I know who's successful read this a long time ago, but it talks about the difference between the personality ethic and the character ethic, right? Right now we live in a society where personality ethic is really... I mean, it's king. You've got an incredible personality, and if you've got some good looks to go along with it, you can make millions of dollars. You can create an Instagram page. You're marketable. People will buy what you say to buy because they like looking at you or hearing you or what you have to say, or you're entertaining, and there's no substance to that whatsoever. And that's becoming the norm now, which is really kind of scary because the things that were important in the 50s and 60s and even you know, partially through the 70s were... How do you treat your wife? How do you treat your kids? What do you teach them? What do you contribute to society? Or are you generous and kind and loving and tolerant? Who gives a shit about that anymore. And it's personality ethic versus character ethic. Character ethic. Yeah. I and mean, what are you doing to build your character? Are you a man of character? Are you a man of integrity? And to me now, you know, money's nice. Don't get me wrong. I plan on stacking it. But that's why I started my business. But at the end of the day, doing it with integrity and doing it honestly is far more important than how much money I make. And yeah. the way that I treat other people and trying to find ways to be of service to other people. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the personality ethic because I, I think it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. You got to look at when Loveline went off the air, uh, Chris, with uh, Dr. Drew. Because I remember Dr. Drew... Uh, who's, you know, became famous local radio station, K-Rock, which you and I grew up listening to. And then he became a nationally syndicated show. I remember Dr. Drew saying something towards the end of when it was him and Adam Carolla. And he's like, you know, July 11th, 2000, July, oh, July 11th, 2000. Holy shit. So this was 21 years ago. That's God. When it went off the air. Yeah. Wow. Uh, We're old. Bro. You. We'll circle back on this, but I was on that show a couple of times. Oh, you were? Okay, cool. We'll get to that when we talk about your online dating. Um, so I remember Dr. Drew talking to Adam Carolla about this idea of um, us becoming a narcissistic society and him, you know, basically pulling on this thread of personality ethics. And then I think I saw him on some show, probably when Loveline became a syndicated TV show. He was talking about for the first time in American history, and he was referring to the Kardashians specifically, I think, um, people are famous solely because they're famous. They're not an astronaut. They're not a baseball player. They're not a titan of business. It's a titan of business. If you have this personality ethic where you're just this cult of personality and now you're famous solely for the purpose of being famous, you've got this platform now. And, and I remember when he was talking about this, social media was very much in his infancy, but he kind of saw what was coming, that you could be a Kim Kardashian who never really accomplished anything in her life 
other than releasing a sex tape, um, which is a pretty hot sex tape, by the way. Um, and uh, and then she became famous. And because she became famous, she became more famous. And then kudos to her that gave her these great business opportunities and the Kardashian family, even though they all drive me fucking bonkers. I'm just in awe of the business empire they've built. But it's a real danger when you start to look at somebody's personality versus their character, which uh, another reason I need to go back and reread this book, because now you have people with no substance becoming famous solely because they're famous. And, you know, great what they've done with their business, but I don't want my daughter looking up to Kim Kardashian of like, hey, the way I start my empire empire is releasing a sex tape of me getting fucking just drilled in a hotel room. It's like, that's not what I want. I want her to think about character and like, who are the people that she can look up to? And I, I, we're probably at a dangerous place in society because of this. I feel like an old man who's like, get off my grass. And, you know, somebody's going to accuse me of wanting to go back to the Mad Men days, which were there. Pro There's problems then, too. Um, but it's just a little bit of a danger, I think. Well, I, she wasn't the only one that did it, right? Didn't Paris Hilton do it even before that? Same thing. Yeah. Same exact story. You know, sex tape, famous overnight. Household yeah. name. Overnight. Yeah. And yeah, I get, I get it. She came from money. They both came from money, right? Because Robert was the famous attorney on the Simpson case, right? Right. So they had money to begin with. But at the end of the day, it was about their looks and about, you know, attraction. And uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you completely. It is very scary territory because now you've got a whole generation and this, not just the millennials, but the kids that are really young right now that are literally watching this in real time and going, that's what I want to be. But they don't want to be astronauts anymore. They want to be influencers. Yeah. They don't want to be scientists and doctors and engineers and firefighters anymore. They certainly don't want to be police officers with the way the environment is now. Yeah. Like who grows up wanting to be a police officer now knowing that there's a chance they're going to end up in situations where they're going to end up national TV because they have to make a split second decision. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine encouraging like me as somebody that has a 19 year old son, a five year old son, a three year old daughter, lots of friends that, you know, I think in some way or another, I've taken on some people to mentor. I can't imagine encouraging anybody in their right mind to be a police officer. Um, I wouldn't. You know, I've got, I've got an ex-girlfriend, actually, lovely lady who one day when she's no longer in the LAPD, I'll interview her and, and we're still really close. I'm really close with her stepdad, um, even though we haven't dated for years. Uh, and she's a police officer. And, you know, if she's being honest, she's like, hey, all the people I know that are good people, they're just kind of, you know, riding out their time until retirement. Like nobody wants to make any waves. Nobody wants to make any change. Nobody for sure wants to be on fucking patrol right. because yeah, in that split second decision, you make a bad decision. Your life is over. I mean, it's just crazy. Well, not a job I'd want, not a That's job. I'd sure. want very, very, very difficult job. And there are some bad apples in there. There's no question. There's bad apples in every single industry and in every single business, right? Every single type of, a, you know, every occupation you can think of. There are people that are really shitty at their job. But there are also some incredible people that are of service and they're putting themselves in harm's way every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine like if I have a bad day and a loan goes sideways or I screw up with a coaching client, it's like whatever. That has a couple hours of ramifications and we'll find a way to fix the problem. You know, if you pull your gun on the wrong person or you allow somebody to pull a gun on you, that's that's either end of life or a, a, a decision that you make that you have to live with a lifetime of ramifications. Just brutal. I, I can't imagine doing that for $80,000 a year. No fucking chance. You ever make a mental list of all the things you could do and you couldn't do? Yeah. Like trash man. I could do that. Yeah. That would actually not be a bad job. They get paid decent. I could get up early. I could do that. I could get out with the dirty. I could listen like, to I'm I cool. I could listen to right? podcasts all day long. All day long. Yeah. Couldn't be a surgeon. I'm not gonna cut someone open. No way I'm gonna do that for a living. Yeah. Couldn't be a nurse. Couldn't do that. Couldn't work in an assisted living home and deal with like people that are getting old and getting sick, although I love the elderly. 
my grandma made it to 98 years old and we used to go to brunch every single Sunday for like the last five years she was alive. Amazing people and got to be there, but then I got to go home and I didn't have to see the sickness and the, the tragedy. Yeah. So the people that do that, it's incredible to me. I couldn't be in law enforcement. I just couldn't do it. There's no way. I don't have it in me to do that. You know, number one job for me after I had kids is I'm in awe of people that can work with sick children. Cause if I, if I'm just at the mall and I see a child, you know, my kid's age in a wheelchair, I get like kind of misty eyed. Cause I'm like, Oh, that, that, that kid's just not getting the full experience of life. So that's number one cop is a pretty close number two. Yeah. Couldn't do it. You know, it's interesting you say that I have a, a fairly new friend of mine and we're becoming dear friends. And I've talked to this girl at length. She's starting up a new business. She works in that field, but it's not necessarily sick children. It's it, uh, children with special needs and children that have dealt, dealt with, uh, with trauma in their life. So children of abuse, children that are on the spectrum, for example, that are autistic or Down syndrome. And what's really tragic, and I didn't, I mean, this isn't in my purview. If it's not in your purview, you don't know anything about it. Right. But these kids, most of them are put into normal schools. They're put into public schools. How do you think they're treated by other kids? Yeah, horrible. Wrap your head around that, right? They're bullied, they're picked on, they're, the teachers don't know what to do with them because they're learning, they have learning disabilities and they're really not treated the same. So then they go home and they're like, mom, what's wrong with me? Because they don't know. Yeah. And so they bring that home so it's difficult for the parents. And what she's starting is incredible and I won't get into it too deep, but it's, it's a beautiful thing because she has such a passion for this. And talk to some of the people that she's worked with in the past and they're like, they're in love with this woman. Because she's had such a profound impact on her life. But they need more of that. There's so many more people out there that need that. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Really, really tough job. Yeah. My, my first wife, who was a, a lovely human being, um, we just weren't meant to be married. She worked with special needs kids in speech therapy. And then in their same clinic, they did occupational therapy and whatnot. And so I would go to, you know, the, the walk for autism with her and whatnot. And some of the statistics of special needs kids is it's insane. It's like, you know, 25 times more likely to be um, abused either physically or sexually because it's harder for them to report and express their feelings. And, you know, the divorce rate amongst parents that have special needs kids, astronomical yeah, through the roof. Cause yeah. it's just, it's so stressful right. and it's just, it's actually rare for parents to stay together. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty nuts. So yeah, as we were getting ready for the podcast, you were saying that your, uh, your chiropractor was like, man, Ty, you're going to miss the mark if you don't talk about your dating stories. Cause you've, you've, as an adult, you've experienced the entire, uh, kind of like, uh, evolution of online dating. Right. So, uh, ever, ever been married? First of all, never been married. Never no, married. Kids. no kids. Yeah. Cool. And the story that I tell myself and everybody else, which I believe is mostly true is that I just didn't find the right woman yet. It's, it, it's been interesting. I, I started online dating cause I just stumbled onto this website called lava life back in the day. I don't know if you ever heard of that. No. Oh God. This was 25 years ago, probably. And, uh, man, this thing was magic. You'd create a little profile, put a couple of pictures of yourself, and then you'd have this little chat feature and you could literally just immediately, almost like it was a hybrid between a dating app and a chat room. Cause I think it evolved from like the AOL chat rooms back in the day. Uh, I remember those. So oh. you could literally be like, Hey, what are you doing? I don't know. What are you doing? I don't want to smoke some weed. Yeah, let's go. And she'd come over like literally that easy. It Amazing. Just, it was insane. And obviously it's not like that anymore, but it's, it's pretty crazy now. It's pretty crazy now. They got what? 50 dating apps, Tinder, Bumble, OkCupid. I missed everything, man. Because plenty of fish is the, think about that. Plenty of fish. Plenty of fish. Literally going to the meat market. That's the name of the app. Yeah. Yeah. It's a meat market. Uh, yeah. I missed all of that. Cause I was like, I was in the army and then I was just working like a slave for nine years. Um, 
And what's funny is I worked at Washington Mutual in Burbank, which is every everybody from out of state, you know, the, the the cutest girl from Sandusky, Ohio moves to Burbank because it's right next to all the studios. And that's where she's going to go on all our commercial auditions and whatnot. So like all through my 20s, I would just, you know, I did home loans for Washington Mutual, but I would sneak over and open new accounts for all the cute girls and be like, hey, you know, why don't we grab dinner? I'll show you around town, whatnot. So I never had to go online. And then I was, you know, married for a couple of years, then in a long-term relationship, then married a second time and happily married now for almost seven years. Um, so I completely missed the online dating thing. Um, and I've heard, I've heard glory stories and horror stories from my friends, both guys and girls. Um, and I, and I heard you just had to call the cops on somebody. That was a, that, that's gotta be a funny story, right? Oh God. You know, it's, it's, it is, but it's also kind of tragic. I mean, look at the end of the day, there's some amazing stories. I mean, you get to meet a ton of people. I've developed some really, really some of the best people in my life. I met online. It started off as a first date. There isn't necessarily the physical chemistry there. Or there's something that maybe doesn't click. Chemistry is a funny thing, man. I mean, you see the, a picture of a girl and she sees a picture of you and then you go hook up and you're like, ah, I'm, you're really nice and you're smart and you're funny, but for some reason don't want to rip your clothes off. Yeah. No spark. You you know, and she might be beautiful, but at the end of the day, that chemistry just wasn't there, right? So I've got some really good friends. And it's funny because now we share, we share battle stories all the time, you know, and they literally are battle stories. You got some really weird people out there. I mean, really, really, really weird people. Okay, you got you to gotta give us like a, like a top five list or something of like uh, of weird, weird shit that's happened on, a, on an online date. Oh, God. Well... <clears throat> Um, so I did call the cops and I did not actually physically call the cops. I did have to unfortunately threaten that. And I put a timer on my phone. I said, I'm going to give you two minutes. You, you got to get out of here. Well, yeah, it, it, unfortunately. And I, and it turned out to be a manipulation, but it really scared me because this girl threatened to kill herself if I wasn't willing to see her. Oh my goodness. And, um, dated her for a few weeks. I mean, we hooked up a few times and I really thought this was an incredible, talented, like, Really, like she had master's degree and was going for a doctorate, and I thought she was totally had her shit together. And then turns out, total facade. There's a lot underneath that. There's always layers to everybody, right? Of course. I mean, and the more you get to know somebody, so it's really funny because as I'm getting a little bit older and I've been more looking for something that's actually serious and long lasting, you know, kind of like a marriage, you know, maybe. Um, put yourself out there as a guy who's looking for something that's gonna that's gonna be around for a while. And as you get to know people, you're like, okay, your crazy is right. Cause I know you got, some we crazy. all got it. I, mean, I know I got crazy, but is my crazy going to get along with your crazy? That's what I need to know. Right. Right. And unfortunately this one, I was not able to deal with her crazy. Fair um, enough. And, and it does kind of become tragic because some of these people really do have some mental health issues. Um, social anxiety disorder turns out, I thought that was an excuse it is a very serious thing. Huh? And not to say that people don't throw it out there. Like, I have anxiety, and maybe they use it as an excuse, but there are some people that really struggle with mental health, oh. especially coming out of COVID. Like coming oh. out of COVID, you got some people that are really, like, they're going through things that they didn't necessarily know they had. Yeah, I I think I've mentioned it on this show before. You know, I, I lost two people that were pretty close to me during COVID because they were dealing with their their demons and whatever they had found to cope with it, you know, church or CrossFit or throwing themselves into work and being around people and working 70 hours a week. Um, both of them had some really deep seated demons that they, they found a way to deal with. And when society got cut off, they, they took their own lives. And um, you just, you know, you never know what somebody's dealing with 
sadly, until we deal with some type of tragedy that we've been dealing with the last year. And, you know, I have, I have a lot of libertarian opinions about how the government dealt with it and how they fucked that all up. Um, but it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, the result was the result. And yeah, people, people are coming out of this in a weird spot. Right. And, and I, I feel weird because we just had a great year and I know a lot of people had a horrible year. Some people are coming out of this more fearful than they've ever been. Some of them are coming out of it with like a hatred to the government. You, I, I've just seen people all over the spectrum with like a lot of anger and a lot of fear, which those two emotions cannot be good for a populace to be living off of. No, no, I, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, this is my take on it. There's a documentary out there that some people have seen and really like. Some people have seen it. They're not necessarily a big fan of, but if you've seen the, the uh, I think it's on Netflix, it's called The Social Dilemma. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how we're, they're using artificial intelligence against us to create, like to turn us into a product that they can sell market to these companies. And it's polarizing us. It's doing it intentionally because they want to keep us engaged. They want to keep us hooked, addicted, and they can sell us more. Yeah. Um, and when people are emotional, as you know, they tend to tune in more. But angry person is going to want to continue to dig into that. Yeah. There's a person that's there. Yeah, they don't really care. They're, they're not that engaged. So they've got to push you in that direction. And so to circle back on the, on the social, on the, uh, you know, how that ties into the dating you know, coming out of COVID, people have literally been in front of their computers, right? They're locked in a room. They can't go out. All the bars are closed. All the Disneyland's closed. Like, you can't really do anything. You can go to the grocery store, and what are you going to do there, right? So then Hook up in there. the fruit aisle. Right. Like, you know, it's just like everybody trolling around the milk aisle just trying to find a date. They're like, oh, that guy eats granola. I also like granola. You know, it's a funny story that you say that because I lived in San Francisco for a year. For, I worked for a company, a travel company. And moved up to San Francisco. And when I got up there, a friend of mine, and I don't even know how they knew about this. He said, where are you going to live? I said, I'm going to live down in the marina. They said, oh, my God, you got to go to the Swinger Safeway. I said, the what? You got to go to the Swinger Safeway. I'm like, this is not a real thing. They're like, no, it's a real thing. So I look it up online. There's a Swinger Safeway. It was three blocks from where I lived. And And we're talking about Safeway, the grocery store. Yes, yes. Okay. So apparently you would go into the Swinger Safeway, and this happened like, Mostly in the 80s and 90s, but apparently it still occurs. I never got to see any. I went in there watching, man. I'm telling you, I was trying to say, I'm like, I got to see this. This has got to be the greatest thing ever. So apparently you'd go into the, and I'm not making this up. You go into the grocery store, you go into the produce aisle, you grab a a bunch of bananas. And if you wanted to find somebody, you would put the bananas on the rail of your cart. Half of the bananas in the cart and half the bananas out of the cart. And you just look around like this is not a real thing. It turns out it's a real thing. Could not believe this because I actually looked this up. Well, I never saw it, but I'm telling you, I tried, man. I went into that swinger <laughs> safe and I'm like, I'd even grab bananas and I'd look around and I was like, I gotta catch somebody doing this. This is great. Oh, like, this is amazing. This is one of the greatest stories ever, but I thought it was all bullshit, but it turns out it wasn't. Oh man, but didn't work out for you, huh? Didn't yeah, find the right person. I didn't find any, you know. Didn't find any willing participants, but it was certainly worth a try. That's pretty funny. I just bought some bananas I never ate. <laughs> you, you know, you mentioned the social network and the and how they're, uh, you know, they're just trying to create this artificial anger to keep people engaged. And it's so funny because I remember hearing a stat a long time ago when, like, Rush Limbaugh was owning AM radio. And he was kind of the first, like, cult of personality in the news. And there was some interesting stat where, like, 
Republicans, quote unquote, would tune in and they generally agreed with him and they would stick around for like an average of like 17 minutes of his three hour show. But people that disagreed with him that were more on the progressive side, they would stick around for like an hour and 17 minutes because sure. they were just so angry and hateful about what he was saying. And I'm sure it happens exactly the, the other way around, right? Like if you agree with Rachel Maddow, you probably just tune in, listen for a few minutes, get your talking points. But if you really hate what she's saying, you probably stick around for half an hour, right? And they sell more ad revenue. And I'm like, oh, so now they've just poured steroids and lighter fluid on that. Oh, and now on social media, you know, Chris mentions all the time that if Chris loves to get in fights with people on uh, the comment boards of like LA Times, he just, Chris is a world-class troll. And he's like, no matter what I do, he's like, if I see a news story, somehow they know how to bring the comment to the front of my screen that's going to anger me the most. Like they have figured out the algorithm of what's going to piss Chris off. And of the 300 comments, which I know he will go and read, somehow the magic one that pisses him off the most will come to the forefront. It's like, it's all just an algorithm to like create outrage and interaction. It's a, uh, yeah, absolutely. They're using artificial intelligence against you. Yeah, what a they fucked up situation. You, they have you bring out how to get yourself pissed off. Pretty brilliant, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, it comes down to engagement. You know, like Scott said, if you agree with something, you just kind of keep scrolling by. But if you don't agree, you sit there and you comment. And to Facebook, a comment is engagement. Yeah, it's money. And so it's going to oh, yeah. show me more shit to piss me off. Yeah. That's why I'm trying to throw everybody off. Like, on this show, I'll have, like, a super progressive, and then I'll have somebody that has no opinion. And then, you know, we talked to a guy the other day, his uh, Jamani, old friend of mine. Like, you know, we disagree on a ton of stuff when it comes to just about everything. But we had a great conversation. I'm just trying to throw people off by not being super angry and aggressive all the time, right. which I don't know if it's working or not, but yeah. we'll figure it out. Right. Um, any other great dating story we got to go over? Like any anything where, you know, uh, you're on Tinder and, and she's a 10 and then she shows up and it's the Hobbit? Well, there's filters. I mean, you know, oh my God, don't even get me started on filters, man. I've been on at least a half a dozen dates within the last four months since just literally since January. Because I think I told you this, I was engaged and it didn't work out. And there were a lot of reasons for that we won't get into. But I decided I wanted to genuinely bring my best version of myself into this next relationship, whenever that is. So I took a year off from dating. And with that, as I told you, I trashed my knee and then I got fat during COVID. So it made it a little easier, right? Because I was completely unwanted anyway. So I finally get back in shape, dedicated myself to the gym and completely transformed the way that I look and feel and my confidence level. So I jumped back on these dating apps and I'm like, okay, it's time. I'm going to find Mrs. Right. And I'm not kidding you, man. I think I hit the jackpot like six in a row where the filters, you're like, this girl is unbelievable, breathtaking, like beautiful, perfect skin. And she'd show up and you're like, wait, where's Sarah? Right. Where's Sarah? Sarah. That's going to be no, the baby. Sarah. No, you can't. You can't be. be Sarah. There's no way you're Sarah. There's an, I'm so That's going to be the name of your new band. Is there a camera? Around? Where's Sarah? Like unbelievable. And they're, and it's, you go back and you look, you're like, how did I get duped? And super nice people. And, you know, if you got to use filters to meet people, that's fine. Yeah. But women are good at filters, man. I mean, like, I don't use any filters. I like, I'm, you know, you either like it or you don't. And that's perfectly okay with me. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, even the pose and the like hip this way, we where were at, <laughs> we were in, um, we were in Cancun and, uh, in Cancun, we were at this hotel where it was set up where like the kiddie pool, you know, which is like 18 inches deep happened to be the higher pool overlooking the adult pool in the ocean. So every night as the sun's going down, all these girls were coming out to take their Instagram filter in the kiddie pool where I was with my three-year-old and my five-year-old, you know, and of course I told my wife I wasn't looking, but I was looking and it's just all these girls 
who you would not see all day. Like they were not out in the sun. They were not enjoying Mexico. They were not enjoying vacation, but somehow they came out in droves to go to the kiddie pool in this little 18 inches of water to take their pictures. And I mean, the fucking posing was laughable. I mean, it looked like the most inhumane contorted picture of like shoulders out, head this way, hip out this way. And they're just trying to contort themselves in these pictures to get this great Instagram photo, you know, cause it did look actually pretty cool. Um, and I was like, yeah, I was just thinking about it, like you're really attractive, but like if this is your life, if this is if this is the totality of your substance, like you're not out here having a good time, you're not swimming and meeting people's kids, your boyfriend looks like an asshole. I was just like, man, this is this is a sad state of affairs for Americans. And by the way, it wasn't just the girls that were doing it; it was some of the guys too. And I told my wife, I'm like, bro, I'm gonna go up there in a speedo with my pot belly and my uneven tan, and I'm just gonna be, I just I just want to go up there and mock these people and like take my pictures in a g-string. But she wouldn't she wouldn't let me do it and i had a bunch of coaching uh coaching friends there but i I thought that would have been really good so next time i go with the boys i'm going to take some of these instagram photos and just show people how ridiculous it looks but i saw some guys out there doing the same thing and i'm like oh my goodness man nothing wrong with showing off the dad bod yeah i guess man i'm 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 I'm, I'm working on it i'm down a few pounds in covid luckily thanks to jujitsu but you know it's it's a funny story you mentioned you tore your knee out and just gain like 40 pounds. You don't strike me as the type of person, you know, because I've seen your Instagram and this journey back to being you know, six pack abs again and stuff. You don't strike me as the type of person that just says, fuck it and just let yourself go. Like, what was that? Was that part of the mental health challenges of COVID? Do you think for a lot of people or was that just you? You decided this is going to be my one time. I'm going to eat bonbons all day or what, what, what went on? Well, I, I do. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. I do. I do like to eat shitty food. Packaged food, uh, fast food, sweets. I got a sweet tooth, brownies, cookies, carrot cake, some of that. And, you know, I shredded my knee so I couldn't exercise. And I bought, you know, I had a joke. I used to live in Vegas for about a year and a half. And I told my brother because I got injured. And I said, you know, it's amazing how that Carl's Jr. got really close to home when I injured my leg. You know, it's like he got so he was like literally right there talking to me every day. Every day, so, right? You know, and. And as, and as somebody that has the defects of character that I have and the need to be in meetings, because I go to meetings, right, to take care of my recovery, and you can't go and visit with people. The fellowship is different. Everybody's on Zoom. So you're kind of just laying in bed going, I'm going to take a year off from dating. And I had mentioned I got laid off for the first time in my life, so I didn't know what that was like. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Am I really going to eat broccoli? Like, really? <laughs> like, is it, am I really going to boil my chicken and eat broccoli when I can't even do it? Like, I can't even go jogging. No, man, I'm going to go buy DiGiorno pizza. I'm going to put extra cheese on it and get some crumble sausage and put that on top. And then I'm going to get a box of cookies and some ice cream. And we're going to do this thing. So I, I called it fat and happy. I really got fat and happy and I felt okay. I really felt okay. But I will tell you this. I used to go look in the bathroom and I'm like, look, you slob. Like there's going to come a day and you're not going to be able to eat any of that shit anymore. And you're going to have to give up all of it. And you're going to have to go super, super strict. And you're going to have to eat all the stuff that you don't want to eat now. And I've been really fortunate because for some reason, just the mental twist happened. And I got really diligent. I got really strict on myself. And after about 30 to 45 days, it just became a habit. And it's been, I don't want to say cruise control because it's still hard, but it just becomes a habit now. You find stuff that you like to eat. Like who knew I'd fall in love with cottage cheese with sunflower seeds in it? Yeah, sounds weird. And it sounds super strange. My buddy Jason turned me on to it. He's like, you got to try this snack because he's super keto. So I got into keto and I eat, you know, yogurt with nuts in it and egg whites with chicken and broccoli. And I eat that stuff. And the weight just falls off. If anyone's ever not tried keto and thought maybe I should give it a try, you might want to give it a try. Talk to a doctor, of course. I mean, you want to be under doctor supervision. 
It's dramatic. Yeah, but most people can't flip that switch. Most like I, I know myself, like I can make small incremental changes, but I can't go from a weekend of like Burger King and DiGiorno and and for me it's Taco Bell. Like I, I I'm the guy who wants to take there's this there's this famous and like the poker gambling community. If you can eat every um every item on the Taco Bell menu in a 24 hour period. Um and some of these guys who are like huge proposition betters and you know just complete gambling degenerate poker players. I mean, I've seen this prop bet like up to like a million bucks where they'll be like, Hey, wow. can you eat every single item on the Taco Bell menu within 24 hours? I feel like I could do it. Like that's my, but I can't go from that kind of I'll weekend. You, when you offer me a million bucks. I'm taking that down. Yeah. I, no question. Dude, there, there's so many guys that have tried it. I don't think anybody's ever gotten through it. Wow. Um, Cause there's a lot of shit on the Taco Bell menu, but uh, I, I can't make that switch where it's like, all right, I was just a fat slob this weekend. Now I'm going hardcore, you know, chicken and vegetables like what is it about you or your mindset or what's some tricks that you've figured out you know later in life where you're like oh yeah i can just i can make that switch and go back to 100 percent healthy that seems so weird to me uh, well i mean you got to keep in mind also like i grew up very late in life right so my maturity level was really not that of the normal human being at the age of 30 35 and even 40 and I was like maybe an 18 year old kid. Kind of sad to say, but I really, that's just my truth, you know? Right. And so at some point you have to say, you know, Hey, I'm going to start taking some stuff seriously. And this was one of the things I really wanted to take seriously. So, you know, that you saw the post on, I lost, I went from 268 to 214 in about nine months. Yeah. And it's not like yeah. you're like a thick rip 214. I was really pissed. I'm like, dude, I want to, I want whatever that guy's doing, except for the discipline. I just don't have it. So uh, that's pretty impressive, man. Uh, what, what's next for you on the health goal? I know your knee was a little shredded. So some, uh, some lateral movement and playing basketball kind of hard right now. Like what, what's next on the Thai fitness challenge? Thai fitness challenge includes staying where I'm at, not giving up on, you know, the, the daily ritual. You know, I mean, after you've done it for a while, you're like, I achieved the goal. I got my body fat from you know, well over 20%. It probably at some point was at 30% for all I know. And I started doing the, what's called a body fit test. They have it at, if you've heard it, you know, everyone knows what general nutrition centers is, but if yeah. you've heard of um, NutriShops. Yeah, yeah, like there's one in Pasadena. Version. So they usually got these machines in there and you stand on it and it tells you your weight, you put in your height and your age, and then you hold these electrodes and it does like electric, like, like uses whatever the technology is that it uses. And it tells you approximately what your body fat is. I got it down to seven, 7.2. 7 7% blown, body fat? Blown away. You know, but you're doing like intermittent fasting. You're doing, you're doing everything all at once. You're drinking way too much water and you're peeing it out. And I mean, it just was, when I saw that, I was like, wow. 7%, holy fuck. That's like, that's like approaching bodybuilder uh, status, right? Ah, they're more like three. 3% body fat? Isn't that unhealthy? Don't you die if you get a cold if you have like 3% body fat or I something? Saw, I saw an Instagram thing with a guy who's like pulling the skin on his stomach out like four inches. It's so elastic. And I mean, this guy had no body fat. It was insane. It's That's just, creepy. It's crazy. And I'm nowhere near that. I mean, in 7%, you got to keep like, that is the peak, peak, peak. And then immediately, probably within 24 hours, I'm back to nine or 10. Yeah. I just want to get down into the teens. I'd feel like a badass. Yeah, it's good. Oh, man. Good. But it takes a lot of cardio and it takes being very, very, very strict to the diet. And, you know, you've heard of the HIT training, high intensity interval training. If you've never done the battle ropes, start doing the battle ropes. They're absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, that'll give you unbelievable. That'll give you a heart attack, right? Like your heart rate will go to like 180, 190 on the battle ropes. That's like the hardest thing I think I've ever done. Uh, I well, my record was 197. Then I hit 198. And then I think it was three days ago. I hit 204. 204 on your heart rate? Yeah, and immediately I went, oh, shit, is that scary? <laughs> so I went yeah. out, I'm doing research. I'm like, is this, is I'm okay here? As long as you're not maintaining that for a long period of time, you're fine. 
Right. And get a peek and then to come right back. Explain to people that have no clue what we're talking about, uh, what battle ropes are. Because I feel like some trainer came up with battle ropes as like some sadomasochist, like wanted to really just, just really wanted to make his uh, personal training clients miserable. So explain to anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about. What are battle ropes? That might have been the purpose of the, you know, back in the day, I have no idea how they created these. But so you picture like you have a post and they will tie two ropes onto the post and they're fairly heavy gauge rope. So like you're wrapping your hands around them, like almost an open hand. Yeah, these are, I mean, these are like the uh, diameter of like a 12 ounce, like beer can or something, like right? Beer can, that's right. And yeah. They've usually got handles on the end. I actually hold the rope. I get a better grip holding the rope than the plastic at the end. And then you're standing back. It's maybe 20 feet, 25 feet. And you just start swinging them up and down. And these are pretty heavy. Yeah, there's like 200 pounds of rope. I mean, you're only talking about doing it for a minute at a time and your heart rate just shoots. Yeah, maybe you can do it for a minute. I mean, I'll this do is about- maximum exertion. You're like absolutely crushing these things. And at the end, you are literally like dying. I'm walking back to the treadmill. I get on the treadmill and I walk uphill. Yeah. For five minutes, go back and do the battle ropes. Go back and forth and back and forth. So you'll see on my, my heart rate monitor, it'll peak at 180 to 190 to 180, 190. And then it's down to 140. Holy shit. And the man. thing that's beautiful and what, you know, doing the, you know, doing the work and actually reading about the way that this works in your body is that when you're done working out, like the typical cardio, you go running or you go jogging or you get on a treadmill or you ride a bike or you do the elliptical is the funniest thing to me because I never got a good workout on that thing. But, you know, you're done. You're done. Right. You burned 400 calories. Good job. But the beautiful thing about doing a high intensity workout is that it continues to burn calories throughout the day. And I think the science on it varies, but it's something like 12 to 14 hours after you're done working out, your body is still at a super high metabolic rate and you're still burning calories. Yeah, because you freaked it out with those fucking battle ropes. <laughs> like, I mean, those, anybody who's never tried it, just go to your local gym or go get a guest pass to Equinox, find the battle ropes, like this 200-pound torture machine of ropes, and then just try to whip them around. It's insanely hard. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you follow The Rock on Instagram or on any of his things, but if you ever watch him do it, it's like, it's so impressive. I stopped following now The Rock. I mean, he's a monster. He's right? a monster. I stopped following him after he yeah. supported Gavin Newsom. I was oh. like, I'm, I'm like, I'm out. I'm, I'm blocking this guy from everything. Uh, man, well, was, he's got an exercise page, too, in addition to, like, his regular stuff. So I, like, watch some of the stuff he does, and the guy's just a beast. Does he do, it like, metal chains instead of ropes? Uh, he actually it's funny that you say that because he doesn't but i've seen him carrying around metal chains when he's doing like lunges and he's got these just monstrous metal chains around his neck i mean the guy's just a machine he's he's like the goal right yeah he's what everybody wants to achieve like you're never gonna get there but you know I want to try. Yeah, maybe some vitamin S I can get there after 20 years of working out. Uh, it's so funny. I should, We were trolling around on YouTube one time, and my kids still ask for this all the time. The guy that was on uh, Game of Thrones, the big power lifter uh, that played the, the mountain, um, he would, we watched some YouTube video. I don't know why this came across my feed, but it did. So I watched it with my kid, and he's trying to break. He did break the world record for deadlift. And when he broke the 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 weight before the world record, his nose started bleeding. Like so much exertion, he just started bleeding out of his pores. And so every once in a while, Gabriel will be like, hey, dad, can we watch the weights with the blood? And I'm like, I'm like, what? And the first time I couldn't figure out what he was talking about, he's like, you know, the guy with the weights, with the blood. I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, come on, dad. He's five. He can't really, you know, he can't really describe what he saw a month ago. He's like, dad, the big guy with the weights, with the blood. And I finally figured it out. And I'm like, you're fascinated by the guy lifting weights to the point where he bled? He's like, yeah, I want to be that guy. And I'm like, boy, I might be setting Gabriel up for some serious alpha male problems when he gets older that he wants to do jujitsu and be the guy who weight lifts to the point where he bleeds. I'm like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's healthy. Um, but it 
was quite the feat. I can't even remember. Chris will have to look up what the what the weightlifting. Uh, uh, I think it was something like fourteen hundred pounds or something. You have to look this up, Chris. What was the dead late a deadlift weight uh, world record? Because it, it was insane to watch. But um, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I will tell you this: the most impressive YouTube, uh, Instagram video that I've ever seen when it came to weightlifting. One one thousand. 104.5 pounds. Yeah, 1,100 pounds. Half a ton. Half a ton. Incredible. It's a crazy. That's just unbelievable. Just from a deadlift position, yeah. that's... Anyway, sorry. The well, most no, impressive you, thing. You might have seen this guy. He has one arm, and he's doing clean and jerks with one arm. Shut the fuck up. Oh, no, no. And it's like four or 500 pounds, like some insane... I don't know. Maybe it's not that much, but it looks like it. That's like, insane. This is, un- this is more weight than I can do by far, and he has one arm. I mean, it's so un- incredibly impressive. You know what's so funny? I think I have talked to, to this guy because there's a CrossFit competitor back in North Carolina. He actually works out at a gym uh, owned by one of my coaching clients. Um, and and he's, yeah, he's a he's like a, a world-ranked CrossFit competitor. He has one arm. And uh, I've tried to get him on the podcast. He doesn't, he's, he does not going to come out to LA until the next CrossFit games, probably in a year or so. But yeah, I might have a one arm power lifter on the, uh, on the, on the podcast. That's insane. I mean, just shows that you can get over anything, right? Well, I mean, that's kind of the point, right? You you see something like that and then you look yourself in the mirror and go, really, dude, you're going to half measure it again. (laughs) Like this guy is willing to put himself out there and train like this. And he's got one arm. And you're completely healthy and able-bodied and you're going to see in the gym. Yeah. And, and that's really been the summary of my life, really. Like, have I really dedicated myself 100% to anything that I've done? Uh, it may be in pieces. Yeah. But that's why when it came to my fitness this time, I wasn't going to cheat myself. And so I've done that. And now I'm trying to do the same thing with the business and with every other aspect of my life. Like when it comes to sobriety, it means everything to me. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, talking about that, you, you're kind of reinventing yourself in business, which is funny because I, I talked to you when we were on the phone the other day. I have like, I have three friends, ironically, that have done this where their second, third, fourth career ended up being insurance and financial services and kind of just reinvented themselves in their 30s or their 40s. What what are you finding? You, you know, we, we talked, you're going to be, you're, you're now in insurance for the last year or so, insurance, financial services, things like that. What's the most interesting thing that you're finding now with the the knowledge, the experience, the sobriety, the the adult mentality that you're finding of like, all right, new career, new business. Like, what what are you finding as the interesting parts, the challenging parts? Because I, I think a lot of people, you know, I think of family members that I've had that are just scared shitless to reinvent themselves in their 20s or their 30s or their 40s. And it's it's all fear-based. And I'm like, dude, you could be doing so much more. Or you could, you know, you, there's something else that's maybe a calling or a passion for you. Um, and I know a lot of people don't do that. Just, they just, they stick with what they know for the rest of their life and probably in some level go unfulfilled. So what's, what's been interesting about reinventing yourself now at 47 in a new industry? You know, it's really interesting that you ask that because I just watched a Ted talk from a guy who's in recovery and it, and it was incredible. I literally saw this last night coincidentally and knowing I was going to come and talk to you and what he said aligned so perfectly with what I've found to be true in my own life. And he said that one of the things that he teaches people, one of the things that he's brought into his professional life as a former addict is that you can run a business, you can be a CEO like an addict. Some of the things that are really important, one of the things that really stuck out to me and what he said and what we've learned is that you have to be able to do the work that's uncomfortable to you. You have to be willing to be your authentic self all the time, no matter whether it's popular or not. 
and you have to be honest. You have to be brutally honest with people, even when sometimes it hurts. And, um, and I think a lot of people just get really comfortable being uncomfortable. And what I say when I, and I'm not talking about doing the uncomfortable work, like that's the hard part. The easy part is I hate my job, but I'm not going to do anything about it because at least I get that paycheck. What's going to happen if I go do this other thing and I fail? What's going to happen if I go try to get this, this license or this certification or this new education and I'm not able to get there? You know, all they see is the downside to failure. I mean, you, there are millions of quotes on how failure is literally how you get to success. You have to fail in order to succeed. There's never been anybody that I've ever known or read about that didn't fail on their way to succeeding. Yeah, I think the average successful business owner had something like three failed ventures before the successful business. You know, it, it, you can just look down the line at all the epic failures that ended up turning into great success stories either later in life or on the third shot or the fourth whatever. It is it is pretty fascinating because, yeah, again, going back to the social dilemma and the Instagram influencers, those people, you never see their failures, right? It's all it's all rose-colored rose colored glasses, and, uh, and that's not real life. It's not real life. Well, that's the personality ethic, right? That's what they want you to see. This, and this is really, I mean, this is kind of the crux of the problem in our society right now is it's all about the image and it's not, there's no substance there. No one's talking about their character. If they did something nice for somebody, yeah, that's not going to make Instagram. No one gives a shit about that, which is really tragic. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're, if you're willing to be uncomfortable, you're willing to put yourself out there. You know, there's a... <clears throat> This is the feminine side of me coming out now. Perfect. There's a, there's a woman whose name is Brene Brown. I don't know if you heard of Brene Brown. And she's no. a phenomenal, she calls herself a storyteller researcher. And she's just absolutely incredible. She's got TED Talks and she's published books. And one of the things she talks about is the, the only way to true human connection is through vulnerability. And a lot of people just aren't willing to be vulnerable. They're not willing to be their authentic self. They're not willing to tell you, hey, look, I was a complete fuck up for 40 years. For 40 years, I lived like a child. Fortunately, that's just my truth. Um, it's not something that I boast about because it's not like there's no braggadocious in that. Right. But that's just my story. Yeah. And I only have one story these days. And I treasure that. And so I listen to people like Brene Brown and I talk about Am I willing to tell you the truth, knowing that you may look at me cross-eyed or you may not want to do business with me or you may not want to be my friend, knowing that if we can overcome those and if you don't look at me crazy and run away, there may be something long-term there. Right. Like we could have a bond that lasts a lifetime. That's something I didn't know how to do before I started on this new path. Yeah, I mean, we're not, for the most part, whether it's socially or from, you know, that stoic generation of fathers or stepfathers, we're not really taught that, right? Like for the most part as a, as, a, as a man growing up, you're like, you know, don't cry, bury that shit deep down inside of you, you know, don't talk about your emotions, you're not a little girl, and it's like, you know, I, I'm glad that that's changing. The pendulum might have swung a little bit too far the other way where now men aren't being taught how to be men, but um, I think the pendulum being all the way over on the other side where it's like, you know, don't cry, don't be a bitch, you know, stand up, just, you know, brush yourself off. Like, we, we don't really learn how to be like, oh, yeah, I, I got to, even if it's a little emotional, even if it's going to bring tears to my eyes, I got to be authentically me as a man. You know, that's, that's not something that's big in the culture. And like I said, maybe the pendulum swung a little too far the other way, but. Possibly, but do you like Bill Burr? I love Bill Burr. One of the geniuses of our time, right? Yeah. And just, just an all around good dude. 
And, uh, you know, he's got a, he's got a bit that he does where he's talking about his wife and his wife's like, where does that come from? Right. I don't know if you've seen that, right? Where yeah. did all this anger come from? And then he talks about his dog, you know, he loves his dog and he had to give his dog away because his dog was violent and biting people. And, you know, and so the wife goes through the grieving process and she's crying and she's mourning because they got to give the dog away. And, you know, and so the dog, the, someone comes to the door to pick up the dog, take the dog away and he runs to the other room. He don't want to see it. And then a couple of days later, he's like yelling and screaming at her. She's like, where does this come from? He's like, cause I stuffed it down. Yeah, totally. Just stuff it you deep know, down. I'm inside. not going to deal with my emotions. I'm going to shove it down. And that's, yeah, you know, not necessarily the healthiest way to do it. No, no, I don't think so. But it's pretty common. Yeah. Pretty common. So I always like to end the show with a, with a couple thoughts. One is, um, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff that's wrong with society and all the things that could go wrong. Um, what, what's something that you see that you're hopeful for? Maybe this is on your own personal life. Maybe this is societal. Maybe this is coming out of COVID. I don't know. What's something that you're that you're seeing in the world that you're like, yeah, that's that's like a shining light. I'm excited. I'm excited about that. Like, I think that's going to make either yourself tie better or society better. Like, what's something you're excited about? Oh God, that's so interesting. You know, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of social issues that we have right now. I I feel like there are racial, racial issues, financial issues, and everybody likes to disagree on everything. Um, And especially coming out of COVID, we got to see the worst in people. One of the things that I really saw just for myself in COVID was that regardless of what you think about it, where it came from, whether masks were right or wrong, we won't even talk about that. But I got to see some really disgusting stuff, but I also got to see absolute best in humanity. I got to see some people that literally stepped up and took care of other people when they didn't have to, generous and kind and caring and loving and tolerant and didn't necessarily have to be, and especially when there's no cameras around. And it really gave me that, you know, that kind of butterflies. Because sometimes all you see is what's on the news and the media is, I, I can't stand the media. I don't care if it's left, right, the middle. It's all about clickbait, right? They're just trying to get you to tune in so they can sell advertising. And those stories aren't heartwarming. 99% of the time, what you see is not heartwarming. But there are real people out there doing really good things every single day that never make the news. And if you're feeling negative about the way that people are, well, maybe what you see is not. Spend a little more time with people that you don't know. Go to some random act of kindness for somebody. And just watch your world change. Sometimes it just takes a change of perspective. On like a national level or a, like a world level, I don't know, man. Honestly, the stuff that we see is rather tragic and upsetting and lots of shootings and there's a lot of bad stuff out there. But willing to turn the TV off and go do something nice for somebody, I think you'll see a completely different world. Yeah. It's like in the real world, people are great. People, people are getting along. People from different backgrounds and walks of life. They're doing much better than the media would, would lead you to believe. Right. You go out into the real world and you see people treating people well. You see police officers being helpful. And you... Right, right. And then, of course, last question. What's the question I forgot to ask? Or what's the, what's the story you wanted to tell? Or what's the question you wish people would ask about you personally? Anything that is of interest. I mean, I'm an open book. You know, one of the things that really got in my way of being useful to other people was that I didn't want you to know who I was. Because I was a little bit, not a little bit, I was completely consumed by my fears and shame of things that happened to me and things that I did in the past because I was drinking and using. And that literally was who I was. You know, I was literally a walking, talking, defective. 
character. Although deep down inside, I was never really a bad person. I just didn't know how to be my real self because I had all these other problems. It just consumed me and it was, alcohol was the solution to those problems at the time. And now that it isn't, I'm pretty much open and honest and willing to do whatever it takes just to get another day sober and to try to somebody besides myself. It's awesome, man. You know, one thing I, I will say this, if, if anybody is coming out of COVID and they found that they've been using or drinking more than they are used to found that they, you know, are a little too familiar with the fast food joint down the street, you know, you, you can change your life. Completely change your life. There's a solution to the problem. A lot of people are drowning in misery because they just don't see an end tunnel. And I'm here to tell you, like, you can absolutely transform who you are. Just do it one day at a time. You know, what's the old saying? How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Sometimes that first bite's the hardest one. So we in a podcast, man. Well, hopefully we can have you back here in a couple months to talk about the the business journey and all the success you're having, man. I, I really do appreciate you being on and being so authentic. You know, we just met a couple weeks ago and for you to open up like that, it really means a lot to me, man. So thanks for being part of the podcast. I appreciate it. It's great being here. Thanks, Scott.